was thinking, Brother Mark, you really were reading from my heart what I came to this meeting with tonight. And I, I came to the, with the words self-sabotage. And I was thinking of how many times, and I alluded to it on Sunday, but how many times we catch a glimpse of glory. We get a frame of God's picture. But we set out, and because that vision doesn't unfold according to our expectations, we sabotage ourselves, our own victory. And I thought of that familiar passage that we often quote where the preacher of righteousness, the, the man Jonah, had rebelled against the Lord and had not gone the Lord's way. And instead he got on a trip to nowhere and ended up in the belly of a fish in the bottom of the ocean. And there, as the bars of Sheol closed in around him and the fountains of the deep were exposed, there in what he described the belly of hell, he, he gets a revelation. And his revelation is those who cling to vain imaginations forfeit their own mercy. One translation says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I like the translation also that says vain imaginations because it shows us what those idols are. Those who cling to vain imaginations forfeit or forsake their own mercy. Forfeiture. Forfeiture of God's grace. God's available grace comes by clinging to stupid perspectives inside the four walls of my head. He doesn't say those who entertain it, those who occasionally think it, think it over. He says those who cling to it. That says that these vain imaginations are not birds flitting through the sky as Luther described them. They are, they are eagles with talons around prey. They are, it's a clinging. Why is it that we cling to our own vain imaginations? And what are those imaginations that could potentially lead to forfeiture? Amen. What are those perspectives? Yesterday morning I did a Bible study and I ministered on it last night in Arkansas about the time when Jesus uh, went to the temple on, in the last days of his time here on earth before the crucifixion. He went to the temple and he hearkened back to the Pharisees' last encounter with a command from God that they received when they had said they wanted to be baptized. And I've taught on it here, and I'm not going to go into that. That's not my purpose right now. But when the authority of God inserted itself in their sanctuary, their temple, and started turning over tables and 
emptying out money boxes and braiding a whip and chasing animals and heathen out all alike, they were very troubled. Jesus had no rank. He was not a leader of the temple. He was not a Levite. And they called him on it. They said, by what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? And he rewinded back to a time when these same people had gone outside of Jerusalem to the Jordan to be baptized by John. They went out with a promise that they ended up forfeiting. It said all of Jerusalem, all of Judea was going out to be baptized by John. And so the Pharisees said, I, I think we should ride this wave. Let's go. So here they come and John said, I just feel so thankful that even the proud Pharisees are coming. What a work God is doing in these days. Pretty much what he said, right? You nest of snakes, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Go bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And we know that on Jesus' entrance into the temple, he comes across a fig tree. And he's not particularly mad at wood or trees that day, but the fig tree is symbolic. And he goes expecting to find fruit and finding none. An axe goes through the root, an axe which John had referenced, right? He said, see now, you den of snakes, an axe is laid at the root of your tree. And every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So here Jesus is walking toward the temple on his last visit. And he sees this tree that has no fruit. And he says, no more shall anyone eat fruit from you again. He pronounces this curse. This final, the finality of it is startling. He goes into the temple and he starts exerting the authority of God. You could say that he starts exhibiting the wrath of God, the anger of God, not in the sense of God's violence, but in this sense, in Mark 3, bear with me for a minute here, in Mark 3, we're told that Jesus goes into the synagogue and sits down, as was his custom, and that a man comes in with an arm all shriveled up. And it says that the eyes of the leaders of the synagogue fixed on Jesus because they wanted to see what he was going to do. And he knew that he was on the spot. They thought it was wrong to perform a healing on the Sabbath. They thought that was breaking the law of Moses. And so he commands the man to stand up. And he puts them on the spot. And he says to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? And the implication, as we've talked before, is that a sin of omission can be doing evil as surely as a sin of commission, right? Is it lawful to do good or do evil? They just wanted him to do nothing. But to do nothing when God wanted him to do something, for him it was evil. So he gave them an either or. Is it lawful to do good or evil? And what did they do? They did what they're famous for. They answered him not a word. And what did he, what, what, how does the Bible describe that? There in Mark 3, 5, Jesus looked around 
cleared his throat and said that he understood their perplexity. That was okay. He would explain later at lunch. <laughs> Wait a minute. I got the message in my ear. That's not what it says. It says, he glanced around at them with vexation and anger. He was angry. And that word anger is the same word that John uses when he says the wrath to come. It means the pulsing displeasure of God. He glanced around at them in vexation and anger. Grieved at the hardening of their hearts and said to the man, Hold out your hand. And he held it out and his hand was completely restored. And they began to plot with the Herodians from that hour how they might kill him. Hmm. So that's what God was bringing something into their lives that was going to require a change. They were going to have a confrontation with God's displeasure. So when Jesus came and he turned over the tables and he exhibited God's displeasure at the merchandise that they had brought into the temple, it says he invited the children and the lame and the crippled into the temple. And the Pharisees were disgusted that he invited these people. Amen. But he chased out the money changers, the merchants, the animals, chased them all out of the temple. What were they experiencing? They were experiencing the pulsing displeasure of God's anger. And yet there was a grace in it, wasn't there? But he says to them, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He, asks, he takes them back to what John said. He said, that thing that John was doing out in the Jordan that you needed so bad? What, was it of God or was it of man? Because if it was of God, there should be repentance in this place by now. There should be fruits of repentance on this tree. But if it was a man, why'd you go out there and do it? Why'd you ask him to be baptized? Why did you reach for something that you said was God and then decide it was of man after the cost seemed too high. Amen. And what did they do? How did they answer him? They did what they're famous for. They answered not a word. And he said, well, neither will I tell you. It wasn't that he thought they didn't know the answer. He knew that they just didn't want to tell. But why didn't they receive the grace that could have been theirs through John? Why? Because they were clinging to something. They had their talons around something. And what was that something? It was their own perspective. It was their own perspective even about the things of God. They had begun to worship their ideas about God as if their ideas had actually become God. Remember what he says in John 5? You search the scriptures... For in them you think you have life, but they are those which speak of me. But you will not come to me that you may have life. There's something inside of us 
When we think we see it, we want to cling to it. We want to hang on to it for dear life. And that's the problem. We come into proximity to God, His presence, His promise, His word, and we feel we can be different. We can change. There's something in store for us. But we walk out and slip into the ruts of our own perspective again. Our own viewpoint. And we cannot undergo the transformation that we felt was possible in his presence because we will not engage in the difficult process of changing our minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. By getting that mind that was once new with the purpose and the perspective of God, getting it new again. Renew it. Make it new again. Something has built up on that perspective that God gave. When he gave you a new heart and a new mind, a new hope, a new power and a new promise, something has layered itself down onto that mind and it's no longer new. This is an old mind. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. That's the new mind. We have the mind of Christ. No one knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man. But we have the thoughts. We have the mind of Christ. Amen? So it's the mind of the spirit. It's a mind of, it's a perspective that is not unilaterally determined by me alone. It's a corporate understanding. It's something I understand with my brothers. When two or three are gathered together, there he is in the midst of us and we start to understand it. What happens if you are rooted in that wrong perspective? <coughs> if you are anchored in that wrong perspective, in that wrong, in those vain imaginations, they are incompatible with the promise you aspire to have. I thought of this scripture. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. If God is cutting on us, that should be a sign that we're doing the right thing. If God is pruning on us, if he's cutting pieces away, that should be a sign that we're on the right track. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And we ask, how much is enough? How much is enough fruit? Can't I be satisfied with you know, a plum every five inches or so? Ten inches or so, Lord? Amen. No. His desire is that we bear much fruit. Amen. He wants us to be part of the tree of life in the midst of the garden of God. He knows that there is a world starving he wants a supernatural bounty of fruitfulness to be springing forth from our lives. A prune, especially a shriveled one, every 10 inches is not going to make him happy. 
So he prunes us so that we may, may bear more fruit. And then he says this, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And that word clean is the same word prune. You could translate it, you are already pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. So what is the sharp instrument that cuts off useless things from our lives to make us bear more fruit? Amen? The word of God is the sharp knife, the pruning knife, that cuts off the suckers of self-centeredness that would sap the nutrients that belong to the fruit for those who would partake of our tree. You are already clean. This word clean, it's, it's amazing. When I, when I look at a, a, a fruit tree that's been pruned, I want to say you are already mutilated. <laughs> but that's the perspective of the flesh, that pruning is mutilation. But pruning is cleansing. Pruning is getting rid of all that junk that is going to compete with the production of God's life-giving fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, if they were deflecting that word, if they were evading that word, hiding from it, then they can't be clean. But in this moment, when Jesus was speaking to them in this season, he's not saying you're forever cleaned. How many times does a tree get pruned? Once pruned, always pruned. <laughs> well, only if you're a dead tree. How many times does a tree get pruned? Every time you expect it to bear new fruit. And how many seasons are we supposed to bear new fruit in? The Bible tells us about the trees planted by the water. They never stop bearing fruit. Oh, let's put this together now. So if we get pruned before every season of fruit bearing, but we're supposed to bear fruit all the time, how frequent are we going to be expecting to get pruned? All the time. But he's saying in that moment, in that meeting, in that conversation, under the knife of his truth, branches were falling from the lives of the disciples. And they were looking ready for a new batch. They were looking clean and able to do God's, will, God's word, God's will. Amen. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. So you could say that fruitlessness in an individual's life corresponds to independence. That's incredible. He's saying abide in me, and if you don't abide in me, you can't bear fruit of yourself. So could we agree that fruitlessness suggests independence? Just this free branch in the wind. I used to be anchored down so low to the ground, wrapped around these braces, 
this trellis, but I am free now. Just look at me dehydrating out here in the elements. I am a free Christian. I belong nowhere. I don't belong to the vine. The vine doesn't belong to me. See how light I am? I can blow like this because there's no fruit on me. What happens to branches that are laden with fruit? <laughs> they get lower and lower and lower. Independence. Freedom. It corresponds to fruitlessness. It just means that you're one of the branches that's been carved off. And you're blowing now, but you're heading toward the blaze where all those dead branches end up. That's what Jesus said, not me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Independence brings total incapacitation in a spiritual sense. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. Hmm, he's so much lighter now has so much more freedom in Christ or from Christ and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned if you abide in me and my words abide in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done <laughs> so this apparently is the kind of prayer that's not asking amiss to spend it on themselves it's asking to spend it on fruit for others if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Thank you, Jesus. What is the sharp instrument that prunes the lives of those who are expected, according to Scripture, to never stop bearing fruit? What is the sharp instrument? And who or how, who, how is that word applied to our lives? I just say where Paul says, do not say who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or descend into the abyss to bring him up. But the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Amen. So that seems to be a big way. Amen. The question is, who brings the word of God to us? We know that God, His Word, is the knife we're talking about. But how does that Word come into our lives? What is the primary manner by which that blade connects with our lives? It is through our brothers and sisters. That sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God, comes to us through those who would speak the Word of God. What did Paul say to the Thessalonians? I praise you, brethren, that you received our Word not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the very Word of God. And what does Peter say in 1 Peter 4? If any man speaks, don't even begin to pretend that he's speaking as God's voice. Or that would be proud and arrogant on his part. Pretty much what the message says, right? 
Something like that. He says, if any man speaks, let him speak as the very mouthpiece of God. If any man serves, let him serve with the dunamis which God supplies. So if any man speaks, is supposed to do so as the word of God, and the word of God is the knife, then we have to say that the pruning that we get is through the words that are spoken to us from those around us who would dare to speak as the oracles of God. And if you don't bring that word to somebody, you are condemning them to be wasted on the suckers of the flesh. Amen. You're condemning the nutrients of their gifts, of God's grace, of his culture and soil of life. You're condemning it to be nothing but a leafy bush. Discipleship applies the word. It takes the sword and puts it where the sucker is. You know what a sucker is on a fruit tree? Where the fruitless branch is. Brother, Brother Burrow could teach us about pruning, I'm sure. It always amazes me when I see him working on it and how painful and radical it really is. But would we dare to let others apply God's word to our life in that manner? You say, well, no, no. Um, it's just me and Jesus in my prayer closet. How's that working for you? How pruned are you in truth? So very pruned, very. Yeah, I got a scrape when someone was walking by. Their, their toe kind of got me. There was another day when the winds got strong and a branch kind of bent. I am very pruned. How much fruit? Well, I don't know about that, but I got a lot of leaves, a lot of branches, a lot of words, a lot of platitudes, a lot of appearances, cultivated appearances. Amen. Well, is it possible that you're clinging to your perspective and that's the problem? You're forfeiting your chance to bear fruit? Is it possible that you're preserving something that you think is you, but that God identifies as just a sucker? Sword to the suckers today. I don't want those things in my life. I want them to be cut away. Oh, I really feel like I'm going through something. What? Pruning? Well, then be encouraged, because God sees that fruit is coming, that you can bear something that's for others and not just yourself. Thank you, Jesus. When do you typically prune a tree? I said right before it bears fruit, but what condition is the tree in right before it bears fruit? Dormancy. When do we deal with sin? When do we go after the problems in our life? When they are in the bud? When they are big, ugly, rotten fruits? We go after it 
We nip it before it's ever even a bud. We nip it in its dormancy. Brother Bro, you can tell us if this is true, but I heard somebody say last year that there are fig trees that if you prune them in the summer when they're not in dormancy, they can, the sap can just go and go and go and they can kind of bleed to death. Is that true? Brother Burl says that's true. God knows when to prune us. In just the moment when we say, I've never been so cold. No leaves. No flowers. No fruit. Oh no. And here he comes with a knife to take half of my bulk away. Some of us would be thankful, but... <laughs> God knows when we need the pruning. It's right before the summer comes. It's before the warmth makes that sap start flowing. It's before the sun rises with healing in his wings and photosynthesis starts producing the life. It's when we feel needy, cold, dry. And the Lord says, but I see something coming. I can picture you in April covered in blossoms. I can picture you in May and June laden with fruit. Amen. Submit to the knife. And you say, but here I was at this point of being stunted spiritually and I haven't grown in months. And here you come to cut off what's left of me. But there's growth coming and God wants it to go to fruit. He doesn't want it to go to more of you. He's not trying to increase your bulk in your image and your appearances. He's trying to increase your fruit. So let him prune you in the season of dormancy. Let him prune you when you're dry and cold. Let him prune you when you feel like you're half what you should be, when it's been a long time since you've grown. Let him prune you. And let it be a suggestion to you of what God is bringing if you'll endure the process. Thank you, Jesus. You don't take the knife when you're good and ready for it. You don't say wait till summer. If he brought that cut at that time, you might bleed to death. But let him bring it at this time. It'll be healing. It'll be cleaning. Does God prune us with suggestions? Does he prune us with opinions? Does he prune us with massaging, encouraging? Hmm? Does he prune us with reminders of the better way? No, he prunes us with a knife. <laughs> he prunes us with a saw. He cuts on us. You cannot be as radical with the problem in your own life, in someone else's life that you love, unless you have the highest regard for the product that is coming, that this junk is going to steal away. If you can't close your eyes and see peaches that are like this, you're not going to go after those branches that are going to soak up the nutrients and make peaches like this. Do you all like that when you drive by one of those peach trees? It's like, are those pecans? Oh, the pecans are orange. I want peaches that are big. 
I'd rather have half as many but twice as big. Big, juicy fruits. You don't have to prune them anymore, Brother Burl, but, you know, you, he does it enough. It always scares us when he's done. Thank you, Jesus. But somebody can see that. They can see what's going to be here in May and June. <laughs> and if they're hesitant with the knife, it's because they're fixated on what is and they can't project to what is coming. What does Jeremiah mean here in the 49th chapter, the 10th verse, when he makes this statement and he says, Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently. And cursed be the one who restrains his sword from bloodshed. There's a saying, don't ever prune your own trees. Let somebody else do it. Because you won't be radical enough. And there's a danger that those that we love the most, we don't actually give them what they need the most. We're hesitant. But he said, cursed be the one who does the Lord's work ne negligently. Do you hear that word neglect? What is it in a dad or a brother that sees a branch that's got to come off and he can't quite bring himself to put the knife there? What is it? What is it that makes him play nice and, and think that he can prune with suggestions and opinions? What is it? He loves this person. Amen. He loves this tree. It's valuable to him. But he cannot see what this problem is going to be several steps down the way. You think it's one of the most evil things you've ever heard for an apostle to come up to the Lord and say, I don't think it's going to be that you're going to have to die naked on a cross unjustly. Is that the most evil thing you've ever heard? Why did Jesus call it Satan? Because Jesus could see the suckers that were going to soak up the nutrients and steal from the fruit. He could see the problem in its infant stages. Jesus could see when something was just starting in the wrong direction. And he wasn't waiting to prune in summer when everybody saw the problem and began to laugh. He was willing to prune in winter when a vestige from last summer was still remaining and hanging on. You're not going to speak the truth to somebody unless you can see what that problem is going to become a little further down the road. You're going to massage around it. You're going to avoid it. You're going to give opinions, make suggestions. You may fret a little bit about it, but you're not going to call a spade a spade. You're not going to try to open their eyes to see that that is the will of the devil that is at work in their life because you don't have as much zeal for what God wants to produce from this person as you do affection for who they are to you. 
We all know about a father who had to take a knife to a relationship and demonstrate that he was not worshiping his son, that he was obeying God. God was saying, are you willing? Are you willing to let go? Are you willing to do what's necessary? We won't receive the fruit, excuse me, we won't receive the, the pruning if we're infatuated with our vain imaginations. And those are the big leafy branches. Amen. Thank God for the people who love you enough to regard what you can be and not just pamper what you are. In the dry stick season of your winter dormancy, thank God for the people who can see summer and pull out the knife and put it where it hurts. Truth separates us from the world. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify or separate them in the truth. Truth separates. It brings a cut. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they, may, they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. You can't have separation from the problem. You can't have separation from the bad habit unless you come under the blade of the word and let it hurt right there where it's connected. And if you cling to your vain imaginations, just know that you're forfeiting, turning your back on a mercy and a grace that could be yours. John 8, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. John 18, therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king, Jesus answered and said, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You've got to be of the truth before you're going to let the truth separate you from what's not of the truth. If you savor the things that be of man, it's not going to work. Amen. Let's look at this in here. It says, um, as a result, Ephesians 4, as a result, you are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by the wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. The antidote to instability is what? Is truth. That's the cure to an unstable life. Truth. Truth that gives no quarter to vain imaginations. No longer you say, well, but he said speaking the truth in love. Well, what does that mean to you? Was Jesus speaking the truth in love when he said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter? Was Paul speaking the truth in love when he spoke to a baptized man and said, I perceive that you are in the bonds of iniquity and the gall of bitterness, you child of the devil. Was John speaking the truth in love when he looked up and saw Pharisees and said, Oh, you nest of snakes, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? So what is your version of love and what is the Bible's version of love? First John said, 
First John says this. In First John 2, he says, Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. You say, I would want to tell him, but I love him too much. No, you're not keeping his word. If you would keep his word, you would show that you love more than the appearances of the right now. You love the promise of what they can be in God. Keep his word and prove that you are truly in love. So he says, we should no longer be these things tossed and carried about, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Look at this. Who applies the sword? Who applies the word? What does the word do? It cleans. What does it do? It prunes. You are already clean because of... How about this? Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. Now how are they sanctified? Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. Isn't that what we just read in John 17? So he says, husbands, love your wives. And how do you love her? You help her. You help her break the adhesions. You help her get rid of those suckers. You bring the sanctifying love of God. And what, is, what sanctifies? Sanctify them in your, your word. Your word is truth. So he says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So he's saying, husbands, bring this cleansing word that I spoke of that the Lord spoke of in John 15. That he might present her to himself, the church in all her glory, having no spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. But you're not going to deal with the spot unless you know what the spot could become. You're, you're, you're going to say, oh, that's intolerant. Unless you are more infatuated with what God made this person to be than you are just your need for them in the moment. He tells us in Ephesians 6, the very next chapter, he says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So is the church supposed to sit around and wait for God to wield the sword from heaven? Or does he tell us, the church, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I can't hear you. Take it up. Grab it. It's the Word of God. And what is that word? How is it described to us? The word of God is sharp and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. You can't get a sword that sharp that can just get right in there between the spirit and the flesh. That can just discern what's really going on. Are you suggesting that God's word would pierce hearts? Yes. When Peter preached the first anointed message that the church had ever heard, when the church was only born a couple minutes, what happened to all those who heard it? Ow! They were cut! Oh God! What do we have to do 
Nothing, nothing. Just go back to sleep and you're a pile of loose branches. They'll be crackling in a little bit. They were hurt because that's what swords do. They hurt wherever they prick. They were cut to the heart. Men and brethren, what must we do? Repent. Somebody will say, repentance just means to change your mind. No, it means a whole lot more than that, but that's absolutely what it means. It means to change your perspective. Somebody have an amplified with you. Give me Acts 2.38. Now Peter said to them, Repent. Change your views and your purpose. Change your views and your purpose. I can't do that, Peter. This is who I am. It's how I see the world. Well, good news is, You've been delusional, but God wants to change your perspective right here and now. Would you like to be transformed? Renew your mind. Repent. Change your views and purpose to accept the will of God in your inner selves instead of rejecting it. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness and release from your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do we do when we get pricked? We change our views and purpose. Because that's what he's coming to prick and cut away. Those vain imaginations that cause us to forfeit the fruit that could be ours. Thank you, Jesus. If you come into a meeting and you say, I came in with one worldview and I was sure I was right, but I'm leaving thinking different, then you've encountered the sword. You've been transformed by the renewing of your mind. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. When the sword pricks, don't gnash your teeth. Two chapters later, the same anointed word came forth from Stephen the martyr before he was martyred. And what does it say? And when they heard his words, they were the exact same feeling that was felt in Acts at the birth of the church that brought 3,000 into the new kingdom. That same feeling came to those and they reached for stones. You're either going to reach for a transformation or you're going to reach for stones. You're either going to say, God, I can be different or you're going to cling to worthless idols of vain, stupid perspectives. Amen, and it's going to pass you by. Shall we not reach for stones? If you're going to reach for stones, let me know. <laughs> you know, what God has called us to is an impossibility in the flesh. We cannot stay in the Spirit without proactive intercession on our parts. Thank you, Jesus. What does he say in 2 Corinthians 10, 5? The weapons of our warfare. This is the wrath that is to come. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God for tearing down fortresses and every argument and high thing that exalts itself above that saving relationship with God. And what is the next thing he says? And bringing, bringing every thought 
into captivity to the mind of Christ. The primary purpose for the arsenal of spiritual power is to overcome speculations and thoughts. Do you hear that? The prime, when he talks about the arsenal of God's dunamis, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty to fight thoughts and speculations. Because it is through thoughts and speculations that Satan ensconces himself in the throne of human minds. But if we can catch it when it is conceived as a stupid little dormant thought and cut it out, we can be transformed. You've got to identify what is the perspective of God and what is the perspective that he is asking me to lay aside. The perspective he's asking me to lay aside has very distinct attributes. It is self-centered. It is whining. It is accusatory. It is a victim in its own vain imaginations. But the perspective that God is wanting us to assume is one of self-sacrifice, not self-protection, self-sacrifice. Love, service to others. It's a power. He has not given us a spirit of slavery, of bondage, of fear leading to bondage again, but of love, power, and a... Is that an indication that those who don't have it or have an unsound mind? Mm-hmm, that's right. That's what he's given us. It's a spirit that gives us a sound mind, a sound perspective. When we walk out of this meeting, your heart has been pricked. God is clearing the way for a bounty of fruit. I feel that so strong. And yet, when you walk out of this meeting, you have a responsibility to bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. You have a responsibility. You've got to go about your day and wake up tomorrow and you know the clouds are low and the barometric pressure is low and faith is low and attitudes are low and faces are low and production is low and, and you get out February doldrums and go, good grief, what am I doing? Pray through it. God, you have given me a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind, and I'm not feeling it right now. But I am not taking one step in this dumb old perspective that leads to the bars and pit of hell. Amen. Jonah went there for me. I'm going to avoid it today. Help me, Lord. Bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. Hallelujah. Captivity. Captivity. That doesn't say reason every thought until it makes sense. Captivity doesn't entail negotiation. Captivity is never the result of a negotiation. Who, who says, let's negotiate for my captivity? Negotiation is for the release of captivity. So when you start arguing with the devil or with the devilish perspective in your own head, you are taking every thought out of captivity. You're negotiating for its release. But when you say, no quarter, I know this, I've gone here before, it's fruitless, and you put it in chains of righteousness and you walk away with it. He's following along. You're captive. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You better put him to death, too. 
Praise you, Jesus. You know, that word captivity, bringing every thought into captivity is... Well, I'm not even going to try that. It's a great word. But it is the same word where he says, Paul is talking about the war between the carnal mind, the carnal man, and the spiritual man. He says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When he says that your carnal man is making you a prisoner, that is the same word only used four times in the Bible where he says take every thought into captivity. He's saying the way you used to be habitual in your perspective of the flesh where your flesh would take the new man prisoner, that's the way the new man's got to take the flesh prisoner. You got to take those thoughts captive that used to take your spiritual promise captive. Thank you, Jesus. You got to stop self sabotaging your promise and sabotage that rotten man of sin that is a cheater and a liar. Amen. A defrauder. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We got to be overcomers. Heaven's not going to be full of great people because there are no great people. It's going to be full of people like Mary Magdalene, full of seven demons and a horrible background. But lo and behold, she was the first to make it to the empty tomb and declare that Jesus was risen. Amen. It's going to be full of people like Zacchaeus, who was a thieving tax collector. But when righteousness came to his house, boom, he was transformed by the renewing of his mind. Put himself under the sword and things fell off and new things were grafted in. It's going to be full of overcomers, people who have changed the way they used to think, and they brought everything into captivity to the mind of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. And we can do that too. We can bring it into captivity. I, I just I want to submit something so simple to you. But when you start feeling those clouds of doubt and sadness and depression and all this kind of settling low on your spirit, and you know that you're, the devil is leading you into his haunted house of horrors, <clears throat> what would happen? What would happen if you just started praying? It says pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. What would happen if under your breath you started praying, God, let me feel your Holy Spirit. Oh, God, help me feel it. Amen, Jesus. I rebuke these thoughts. I rebuke these ideas. I rebuke this fear in Jesus' name. You've made me more than a conqueror. What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. You would overcome. You would prove that you're more than a conqueror through him who loves you. But you think because there's a battle, oh, I shouldn't have to fight these battles. I ought to be past this by now. No, you ought to be in hell by now. Only by God's grace are you able to fight this battle. Fight it with all your worth. Thank you, Jesus. Bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. Hallelujah. you got to walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. you got to walk by the Spirit. If you're starting to slide into the flesh, get in the Spirit. You say, I don't know how to do that. I'm just too mad. Well, good. Humble yourself and stop being mad. You don't have any right to be mad, Jonah. Amen. The Lord God may have provided a worm to remind you of how much you need Him. You just humble yourself and remember to be grateful. 
remember to be thankful. You say, I don't, <laughs> I can't be thankful. I'm just, I'm upset. So-and-so wronged me, and this is a dead end over here, and blah, 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 blah. If you don't know that you have something to be thankful for, then you're not converted, and you don't know who Jesus is, and you don't know who you are. But the Bible says you can walk right into the presence of God and stand before the throne of grace if you can start praising and thanking. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. If you start thanking him and really feeling it in your heart, you're going to pass through a gate. Amen? What gate? The gates of glory. The gates where there is a throne, a throne of grace, a throne of mercy, a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Hallelujah. He does not say enter his gates with whining and his courts with complaining. Amen. He has nothing to do with it. But if you can be thankful, oh God, says that the reprobates, that they are unthankful. But if you can be thankful and remember what God has done for you, remember who you are, then you can get into the presence of God. I don't care if you're behind a wheel. I don't care if you're tired. I don't care if you're wronged. I don't care where you are. You can get into the presence of God. Your image represents all the branches he wants to break away. You, you have got to be transparent in your need for God, in your joy in his presence. You cannot be there sitting like a bump on a log with some face carved out of beautiful ivory and imagine that God is going to inhabit those praises. He's not. He inhabits a particular kind of praise. It's called sacrifice of blood. That's what he inhabits. He's going to come where there is a sacrifice of praise. And if he's not coming, it's because you're not making an acceptable sacrifice. But you can get there. It's within reach right now. Mary Magdalene broke the alabaster jar. She broke it. Amen. She wasn't sitting there saying, well, if he knows, if he's a prophet, surely he'll know my needs and just tailor meet them. The people who were saying that were the people who left untransformed. They were the people full of their own righteousness and they're in hell right now. Judas is one of them. But the person who knew who they were, oh God, she went out and Jesus said, her sins which are many are forgiven her. God, your grace is here for us. Amen. Let us enter into this change that you're calling us to even tonight. Amen. <laughs>